This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Maddox also held the official planning exchange third year party on Wednesday evening. We were so honoured to have so many fantastic people attend the event. Check out our Facebook page for further photos from the event. Today we're speaking with Phil Borelli, who's the founding director of SJB Planning. Phil's career began at the former Metropolitan Planning Authority and the state government, where he managed both the South Bank and Central City planning areas. Phil began working in the private sector in 1989 and since then has assisted a range of public and private sector clients to meet their land use and development objectives. Phil is a regular planning witness and experienced advisor on planning and property issues. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you, Jess. Welcome, Pete. Sorry, I didn't even introduce you. That's right, Jess, and a wonderful night at uh, Maddox the other night. Very glamorous event. I hope uh, our listeners look through the photos. Phil, you started as at the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works back in the 70s. Yes, that's right, an organisation that no longer exists. <laughs> yes, and, and that, that was quite a historic organisation. I mean, they, they were responsible for a lot of the infrastructure projects and they were like a metropolitan planning authority. In they were. In fact, they were a metropolitan everything authority. They, um, they ran the roads and the uh, parks and the drainage and sewerage systems of Melbourne as well as... Uh, town planning. And you started there as a cadet? I did. It's another concept that's not um, used today so much. Except in the police force, I think. Yes, that's true. <laughs> um, yes, it was like a, um, um, an in- internship. And Phil, you've been around for a number of decades. What was... <laughs> I don't mean to be rude, so have I, but... Doing um, well so far. <laughs> so... Phil, you know, you've, you were mentored when you started, and was that a good mentoring system at the Board of Works? It was, um, or, well, certainly for me it was. Um, we had a very good uh, senior officers who had the time and the inclination to want to help their young student planners and to um, give us a very good grounding um, as we began our careers. And do you mentor any staff at the moment? I have been doing that over a long period of time. Staff at SJB Planning, we've had uh, lots of new planners or young planners come through the doors over the last uh, 20, 25 years. Um, So that's been something that I enjoy doing. Phil, it's an essential part of any career development, isn't it? Mentoring, getting getting that good mentoring at the start. I, I think so. That's something that people always tend to remember in their careers is the the good teachers they had at um, school and also the good uh, mentors they had as they started their careers. And moving on to some design issues, uh, John Constable, the painter, once said, we see nothing until we understand it. What do you see now that you, you didn't see, say, 10 or 20 years ago? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I suppose the first one is lots of um, good young planners around these days, whereas I think um, earlier on in my career, uh, planning was not as popular and um, there were less uh, good planners around. But now there's certainly a lot of um, very talented young people coming through the planning courses in Melbourne. 
and other areas um, and coming to Melbourne from other places around the world. So we're very fortunate in that regard. Do you think that's because there's more awareness about planning issues these days as there was, you know, say 20, 30 years ago? Uh, yes, I'm sure that's part of it. Mm. Um, but I think it's also about uh, career choices and uh, people being more savvy about what jobs, what careers are likely to lead to uh, good professional jobs. Mm. I suppose another thing that I didn't see coming was, um, I suppose, the trend away from a bipartisan approach to densification in the uh, middle ring of suburbs in Melbourne. I think both the uh, the former Liberal government and the current Labor government have uh, um, tended to uh, be a little bit more tentative about those things and change the legislation. I think there were things like... Uh, um, bringing in density controls in municipalities like Burundara and Bayside and uh, now more recently the garden area controls uh, that the current government's brought in, um, minimum garden area controls, particularly in the, ge in the general residential zone where it perhaps is not warranted in uh, a lot of cases. So there's always tension in planning, Phil, and part of that urban consolidation push, which is not just unique to Melbourne, but I think every major city in the world is doing that. There's a lot of tension between protecting um, established residential areas and increasing population density. What can, we, what can we do a bit differently, do you think? Well, community education and understanding is a big one. Um, people will tell you that, uh, that this information is readily available, but it's probably not at the forefront of uh, people's thought processes and understandings. Uh, there aren't a lot of um, articles written about that sort of thing, either in the social media or in uh, the general media. And I don't think the politicians are that forthcoming with the reasons why urban consolidation is a, a very important planning principle. I think as well, perhaps just providing the community with more examples of good development. I think there's a lot of really bad examples out there that get thrown around, particularly in uh, the media, of really bad development. But I think, you know, we spoke about previously about, you know, the four or five storey density in Paris and other European cities across the world, whether we can start to, you know, bring in some of those examples into the Australian context so that people aren't quite so scared of the, de of the density that we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Jess. I think in Melbourne, there is this fear of height or anything over one or two storeys is, is going to change the character of mm. the city. And it will to some extent, but is that a bad thing? Mm. Um, we, as we said, we all go to Paris for our holidays and say, what a great city, and yet Paris is uniformly seven storeys. Mm. Um, there's no real issue about medium rise density, in my view, provided it's not um, if it's, it's not in inappropriate places. So mm. that if there are places with special character, that those are maintained, but not every suburb has a special character. Yeah. Even just this idea that all new development is terrible quality, I think that's a massive misunderstanding from the community as well. Yeah. Mm. Well, Phil, I went and saw the new Blade Runner film the other day and that uh, gives me the heebie-jeebies about urban consolidation <laughs> and uh, slum dwelling. We've... Um, We've got a, a number of high-rise towers have gone up fairly quickly and there is some unease that they will become the slums of the future. What, what are your thoughts about clustering high-rise together? Look, I don't see that as a bad thing per se, but I think we have to be very careful about uh, the densities of those precincts and the amenity 
that we're creating into the future for the residents of those towers. I don't think Southbank's a good example of that. In fact, I understand that Southbank's got one of, if not the highest residential density of anywhere in the world, including uh, Hong Kong and New York. Um, and that's, to my mind, not a good thing. I think we're, um, we're really in a position where if you're going to use the high-rise model, uh, then you have to make sure that the towers are separated um, sufficiently to enable sunlight access, outlook, uh, to deal with wind impacts and those sorts of things so that the amenity into the future um, will still be satisfactory. For many years now, Melbourne has, the bad, or has received the badge of um, being the world's most livable city. Some still say, though, that Melbourne has become too big and as a consequence is no longer livable. What are your views around this? Well, I think we're approaching that size, um, if not uh, slightly beyond it. In my view, the ideal size for a city is probably around one to four million people. Um, cities of that size are sufficient to provide um, a really wide range of services and facilities and employment opportunities and diversification all the sorts of things that people look for in an urban environment or a city and the reasons why people want to live in a city. Uh, but beyond that, the problems seem to escalate. You know, things like congestion, pollution, um, infrastructure cost, um, all intensify as cities get beyond that, um, that three, four million range. Well, Jess, you've got that public uh, health background with your masters, and some of the issues about community well-being and health indexes, mm. um, and particularly things like commuting, fill long commutes, and things like that, have been shown to be very poor for people's health. Do you think we have enough information about our, how our cities function in terms of uh, the index of well-being of cities? Well, there's been a lot of research done on those sorts of things in recent years. Um, and a lot of the studies are showing the same sorts of things, that the, the long commutes um, that people are now having to undertake in the bigger cities are really having a lot of social impacts, not just in terms of the amount of time that uh, people can spend with their families, but it actually affects uh, things like family relationships. Uh, children don't see their fathers or their, their main breadwinner in the family as often as uh, they would see the other member of the family or the other parent. Um, also things like diversification of um, household responsibilities so that um, certain tasks in the household that might have normally fallen to one partner are falling more to the other partner. That, that's a, assuming, of course, it's a two-parent household. I mean, a lot of, of course. households are single parent now. Yes, they are. And that's also affecting family relationships and the division of responsibilities might go to um, um, in-house help. Mm. Phil, what do you think the biggest mistake is made in planning decisions? Well, that's a good question, Jess. I think um, compromise is probably the biggest mistake that I see. Um, I see decision makers who want to try to please both parties in a dispute or um, compromise their decision. And that can often lead to a no-win outcome. I see it in VCAT decisions um, where I think the right decision is to grant a permit, um, but the decision maker will be influenced by the veracity of the objector's case or the council's case um, and want to try to 
um, give them something, if you like. And sometimes it's the other way. But I think a decision maker should try to um, stand by their principles and make the correct decision. And whilst that generally happens, um, it doesn't always. Phil, you've appeared in front of many tribunals and panels and presumably courts. What makes, in your view, a good tribunal member or judge or when they're... What do you look for when you're presenting or giving evidence? Well, I really like someone who um, gives you an indication of the way they're thinking during the hearing. Um, some members um, are pretty reticent about uh, their thought processes. Others will be more forthcoming and say things like, well, um, you've indicated to me that you think the overshadowing is reasonable in this case. Tell me why you think the shadow at uh, one o'clock in the afternoon on 50% of the backyard is okay. And that gives you a clue as to what they might be thinking about that particular issue. Um, and that gives people an opportunity to go back over an issue um, and debate it and therefore hopefully lead to a better planning outcome. Now we're getting to the pointy end of our questioning here um, where we move into ethics. First question is, have you ever knocked back any work? Yes, I have knocked back work. Mm -hmm. um, I've been fortunate to be in a position to be able to do that from time to time, although I do it reluctantly. Mm. Um, it's certainly something that uh, has to occur from time to time. I think the main situations that I've come across have been where I haven't been able to convince um, uh, an applicant or a, um, a, a developer client that um, design, good design will give him better property prices, him or her, and um, will not necessarily the the meanest, nastiest, smallest apartments and the cheapest building um, will result in the best uh, financial return. Mm. Tempering client expectations, Phil, is a bit of a skill. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's something that um, all good consultants have to learn to do. Um, and it's not all that hard, I don't think. Most clients and uh, developers are willing to listen to um, logic and good reasoning and they want to get a planning permit, they want to get on with their development, they want to turn over and make a profit and that can only happen if you get a planning permit. Um, otherwise you're going nowhere. So they want to sail close to the wind but they also want to achieve a positive outcome. So they are willing to listen, perhaps um, often later in the process rather than earlier in the process. Um, but I've found most people um, are good to work with. M moving to um, formulation of planning policy. It, it's, planning policy is political by nature, of course, and how do we foster new ideas in the planning policy sphere? Um, well, I think something Melbourne's lacked for, or Victoria's lacked for a long time, has been a um, planning advisory body. I know we have the Victorian Planning Authority, but it's more an implementation authority or implementation of government policy. What I'd like to see is more of a think tank type approach, a bit like the Committee of Melbourne, but with some uh, legislative clout. Um, that could actually advise the politicians on um, good planning decisions. So we're talking about a festival, a festival of uh, dangerous ideas before, I think, mm. Jess? Experimental cities or experimental suburbs. 
pilot studies for what are you open to these things it's not something that I've had any involvement with or given a lot of thought to and I'm not sure that uh, it's necessarily um, something that I would want to see widespread I think one of the issues that we have is that uh, land resources are quite scarce and they're becoming scarcer and I think um, whilst I'm usually in favour of experimentation, I wouldn't want to see um, good land resources squandered um, in mistakes. So I think I'm a believer in planning, at least to some extent. (laughs) (laughs) Song Bowden provides town planning services throughout Victoria. They are recognised within the industry for providing planning, advocacy and expert evidence in VCAT hearings. So give Dave Song or Dan Bowden a call to discuss your planning needs. SALT, Traffic Engineering and Victorian Planning Reports. Can we talk a little bit about developers? They have a bit of a bad rep in the industry. What do you think can be done? How do we rebrand them? Should they be, you know, uh, city makers or city creators? Place makers. Or, or, should we just con- or should people just continue to vilify them, Phil? Well, I don't think developers should be vilified. I think uh, almost everything that we have in our modern cities that we value has been created by developers, so um, or everything in the physical environment. And some bad so, things too, of course. Some bad of things, course. of course, many bad things, but also many good things. Mm. You know? So um, innovations in housing, innovations in um, shopping centres, business parks, cafes, restaurants, uh, transport systems have often been brought about by developers. So I, I think developers um, do deserve a better rap. Um, Yes, rebranding would be a, a good concept, but I think also um, media attitude towards developers ought to change. I think a lot of the articles that you read in uh, the media and or watch in the media tend to um, highlight uh, the bad things or um, the controversies rather than uh, pointing out the good news stories. and. Uh, the reasons why uh, developers do what they do, the risks they take, and the outcomes which are sometimes of great benefit to the community. This is a point that Sean Hogan uh, in a few PXs ago talked about, the the idea that um, we ought to recognise great developments and um, laud good developers for doing outstanding things, but we, we don't, the press is very negative mostly. Look, I think that's right. I think there are awards um, in relation to design, architecture awards, um, but not so much awards for developers. And I think um, where they do exist, they're perhaps not receiving the uh, media recognition that they deserve. Phil, each planning generation tends to criticise previous generations. I know it's now very popular to deride the car-based suburb and things like that. Um, they were all done in good intentions, previous generations of planners, what they did. What do you think in, say, 20 years' time, the planners of 20... What is it, Jess? 2037? <laughs> do the math. <laughs> 2037 are going to say about us lot and what and our phase. What do you think they'll say? What well, were they thinking? Well, I think um, at the macro scale, we'll be, probably be criticised for putting the current economy ahead of the future environment. Um, There's been a huge debate, as everyone's aware, about um, 
global warming, climate change and the need for action. And yet um, planners, politicians continually thinking about the impact on jobs, the impact on lifestyles um, and tend to put off action that's, um, that's really needed. So I guess that's the, the, the big one. On a smaller scale, I guess there'll be things like infrastructure spending um, and affordable housing, those type of things where we may be criticised for having not uh, spent enough on infrastructure, planning for the future, um, affordable housing. Um, we all know that that's an issue and needs to be addressed. On the flip side, Phil, and I'll probably be unpopular for saying this, but there is a view that some of the worst public policy decisions at the moment are based on uh, environmental issues. And I'm thinking about the desal plant that was built 10 years ago that hasn't produced any water, that there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions to, uh, to spend on uh, infrastructure that is probably not well considered. Well, I think that's right, and um, we might say politics gets in the way a bit, Peter, in terms of sensible infrastructure decisions, but they are major decisions, and um, they are using resources which are quite scarce in terms of cities the size of Melbourne. So I think they need to be thought through more carefully, and uh, the concept of having a, uh, a, a an infrastructure advisory body that's at arm's length from the government would be a good one. I mean, we all know about the desalination plant, but the other one is the scrapping of the east-west link um, after an expenditure of something like a, a billion dollars. And those sorts of things are disastrous waste of money whether, um, when they're made for political reasons. So I think um, we need to have an advisory body that that receives bipartisan support on infrastructure projects. And what do you think have been some of the most uh, successful planning strategies that have emerged? Well, in my experience, I could hark back to the 1980s, the, uh, the central business district controls that were brought in then. Um, they were based on uh, plot ratios and development bonuses for things that contributed to um, what makes Melbourne uh, Melbourne. Things like um, bluestone footpaths, laneway upgradings, um, building towers that were square to the grid, restoring heritage buildings, those sorts of things. Um, weather protection was one weather of those. Weather protection, retailing in laneways. And a lot, of, lot mm. of times people said, oh, that will never work. Who's going to open a shop or a bar down a laneway? Um, but look at it now. In years to come, we all marvel at um, some of the things that were achieved, and now they're they're key um, contributors to what makes um, Melbourne a, a growing, workable, vibrant city um, with a really healthy economy um, to boot, as well as social life. So um, it makes Melbourne the envy of other cities in Australia, and other cities are scrambling to see how they can catch up to the environment that's been created in the Melbourne CBD. So I think that's been a very successful policy and one that it's been a shame to see it's been watered down in recent times by uh, perhaps governments that have had less adherence to the, uh, the genesis of that. Mm. We're sitting in South Bank at the moment and you're involved in the early days of um, some of the South Bank plans. Yes, how I was. Is it, how has it evolved? 
Well, not differently to what it, it started out as. I think in the early days, Southbank was pretty much a, a low-rise industrial precinct. Um, its basis was that it was swampy land originally and it became um, the warehousing um, um, waterside area um, in the early days of Melbourne. And so um, high-rise buildings were not really possible here because of the, uh, the poor soil qualities. But... In more recent times, engineering has moved a long way and other things have been possible. But when we started the revitalisation of South Bank, originally it was intended to be um, a largely low-rise precinct, but with uh, a few landmark buildings in key locations. There was uh, a large um, effort to try to get housing into this area and that was successful, perhaps um, more successful than um, was originally dreamed of. But in the early days, developers um, that developed this Riverside Key Precinct and Southgate were not prepared to do residential. It was too big a risk. They would only do office development and retail development. And hence, um, there is no uh, residential in these two developments that were the, the, the first two developments in Southbank. It came later, companies like Central Equity, um, much maligned, but they've um, achieved a lot in terms of uh, getting uh, kick-starting residential development in the South Bank precinct and other developers have subsequently followed. So that's a case of planning, setting out the broad framework but being mature enough and uh, professional enough to adapt the strategy as, as, as times changed. So it's a successful, you've seen it from start to where we are now, quite... Yes, I would say it's been a success, certainly in it revitalising into a precinct that contributes to um, housing Melbourne's population and uh, workforce, um, although I think the density is a little higher than it, than it would ideally be. You, Phil, I'll read your quote. You don't make good design. If you think about good design, you make good design if you speak about life, sex, flesh and sweat. That's by Philip Stark. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't want to contradict Philip Stark. Um, what I will say is that I think that's a reference to um, good design not being formulaic, um, but more something that evolves and is perhaps different in different um, scenarios. So I think the same applies to planning and planning and design, and urban design. Um, some of the best uh, or what people would call well-designed precincts were not necessarily planned that way. Um, you might use a reference to saying, well, Docklands is criticised, but Docklands was very heavily planned and designed, and yet people would prefer suburbs like um, Fitzroy and St Kilda, which have heart and soul. Um, Melburnians certainly would prefer that. So I think Philip Stark's um, on the ball with that one. Is that a bit about experimentation, though, Phil? We're getting back to the experimentation idea. Is that, uh, you know, just allowing randomness sometimes? Well, Peter, I think you might be have a point there. So <laughs> I'm sure there's um, a place for that sort of thing. And uh, planners affect everyone's lives. I mean, that's probably why you, you originally did engineering, Phil, and then changed over to planning. But... Planners affect everyone's lives in, in, in many different ways. How do you think, um, the, do you think the professions sometimes forgets how much we can influence society's well-being and just general enjoyment? Well, 
I really think that they do. I, I often find in conversations when people criticise things that have occurred in planning and I point out or indicate my uh, opinion as to the reasons why these things happen, I'm sometimes um, a bit surprised at how little people understand about the reasons for planning policies, particular planning policies or decisions, and uh, are easily swayed. So yes, I think we probably sometimes do underestimate the influence that we could have on uh, public policy um, if planners had a, a better voice. And uh, one question I like, uh, Phil, it's all about regeneration, not redemption, but regeneration. Uh, in thinking, in communicating, in processes, uh, many individuals get stuck in a planning rut after a number of years. Um, have you ever been stuck in a planning rut? Um, well, I've tried not to be, <laughs> but um, I, I guess that's something we all have to fight against. Yeah. And, uh, and, the, and what other things can we do to sort of regenerate, do you think? In terms of um, somebody's career, but also in terms of uh, refreshing the profession and the contribution that can be made to the profession. I think we're, we're used to looking at um, artists and um, people like that who go through various stages in their creative careers, actors, um, musicians, have histories of re reinvention. They're constantly striving for new expression and I think that's something that um, enriches um, their fields of expertise. And I think the same should be said of planners and uh, is the case for most planners. And Phil, how do you refresh and relax? A little birdie told me that you are in fact a pennant squash champion. Back well, in the day? Well, squash was one of my um, early sports. Uh, Cooking is not my forte. <laughs> With your French background, Phil, surely. That's not so. It makes me laugh when I watch Annabelle Crabbe's kitchen cabinet <laughs> and see the squirming uh, nature of some of the politicians represented there. Um, but I do prefer um, outdoor activities, sport, um, and also travelling and reading are my things. But um, more recently, I've just become a grandfather, so I have a, a, a new young granddaughter now who um, I love dearly and I spend uh, more and more time with her these days. Lovely. And do you have a, do you listen to any other podcasts? Do you have any recommendations or book recommendations? Uh, well, I'm reading Nick Rewalt's um, book at the moment, Ooh. which is not just about football, but also <laughs> about life and what it teaches us. For people outside uh, Victoria, um, uh, Phil is referring to a footballer who played with St Kilda Football Club who uh, uh, have a bunch of supporters who are, uh, what would you say, Phil? How would you describe them? They're a bit oh, bohemian. They're bar um, yes. waiting, for a, waiting for an elusive flag. That never comes. But Nick <laughs> married a, um, an American girl from Texas more recently, met in Las Vegas. And they're very happy together now with two children. Well, I love that good story, Andy. Thank you very much, Phil. And this is, uh, listeners, this is PX31. We've got a fairly full book coming up, of interviews coming up. So um, please listen out. Thank you, Phil. And thank you, Jess. Simmer down, simmer down, simmer down.
drifting down stream.